Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. Everybody, welcome again to Cornerstone. And uh, man, I don't know about you, but students on the weekend just gets me. Like, there's just something so inspiring and hopeful and powerful about being led in worship by a bunch of kids <laughs> and or young adults, whatever. <laughs> you decide. You tell me. I'll use those words. It's just the best. And it's funny for me because I'm in this weird age right now where I'm young enough that I feel like I don't really know anything, but I'm old enough that I can't relate to young people anymore. (laughs) And I'm like backstage like, guys, great worship set. That was lit. (laughs) And they're just like, are we not? We're not saying. No, literally like an hour ago backstage, I walked back and uh, there were two high schoolers like teaching each other this dance move thing because they're just cooler than us and more fun than us and get life more than we do. I'm back there like looking at my phone and they're teaching each other dance moves. And so they're like, Kevin, you do it. And I did it terribly. And then they just erupted and they were so pumped. And I realized in that moment that I'm now at the age where they just think it's really novel when I try. (laughs) And they're just like, lol, look at you. Anyway, so we got these amazing junior hires and high schoolers leading us today that are giving me so much hope. But if you would have known me when I was 16, and some of you did, uh, and you asked me, hey, Kevin, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said that I am going to be a billionaire. That's what I would have told you. And there are a few reasons for that, but mostly because I somehow developed this huge complex about wealth and money growing up. So my parents were in ministry. The church was like in our living room. That's sort of my family story. And so especially when we were growing up, we weren't like Scrooge McDuck. That wasn't like our our life. But we were fine. We went on vacations. I the idea of being hungry never occurred to me as a kid. I went to private school. Like, granted, my parents got an insane discount because they're in the ministry, but still, I was going to private school. My parents owned their house. By any objective measure, we were totally wealthy, and yet, I got it in my, in my head as a kid that we were so poor. And not like a rational adult might think about it. I wasn't like, I wonder what dad's 401k looks like. And like, 
is this a good neighborhood to be investing in? Like the school district's a little iffy, like I'm sure. Are we in a bubble? It wasn't that. It was, it was stupid things and small things. I had convinced myself that every single purchasing decision my family made was because we couldn't afford the alternative. Let me give you some examples of things I did not think we could afford when, we were kid, when I was a kid. Energizer batteries. My parents would buy Duracell because that was, I don't know, closest to the checkout because all batteries are the same. And I was like, someday. <laughs> oh, it keeps going and going and going. Coke, Coca-Cola. My family liked Pepsi, so I therefore assumed that Coke was the choice of the wealthy. And when I'm a dad, I'm gonna make sure my kids have Coke. BK Knights. Any child of the 80s and 90s that watched Nickelodeon wanted these terrible shoes, and I was one of them. Frozen dinners. My mom, if you've ever had the pleasure of eating my mom's food, it is amazing. She is such a talented cook, and cooking is such a huge part of the love she brings into the world, and I'd be sitting there eating it like, if only the people at Cornerstone would give more, I could afford Hungry Man. <laughs> Lord... Just a spirit of generosity on our church so that I can microwave my dinner. And lastly, the pinnacle, the sign that you've made it in the world. My neighbors across the street had a clear phone. You could see all the components and my stupid little six-year-old brain would be like, I don't know how much of that billion I'm gonna have to spend on that phone, but it is worth it. So the reason I bring this up is today we're talking about wealth worship. We're talking about the role that wealth plays in our culture. And I'm the one talking to you about this because I've been wrestling with this my whole life. This weird relationship between success and money and competition and comparison and hero worship and generosity and all of that jumbles around and rolls around in my head all the time. So I didn't, I didn't go into full-time church ministry. My parents did, both of my brothers did, my wife did, three of my four sister-in-laws did. I'm surrounded by people that did this, but I wanted to make money. So I went into business. That's what I did. Uh, I've been a part of starting things. I've been a part of some insane successes. Uh, I've been a part of some huge failures. I've worked with and for and around some absurdly wealthy people, like hundreds of millions of dollars net worth wealthy people, and worshiped them, and daydreamed about what my life was gonna be like when I was like them, and played out in my head conversations where I could sort of, okay, I'm gonna be rich, but I don't wanna make obvious how much, just, you know, the Lord, the Lord's just blessed me. I, would, I, want, I daydreamed about being that guy. This week, while I was writing this message, I bought a Powerball ticket. And the irony of that <laughs> did not strike me until Thursday morning when I was like, dang it, I didn't win $750 million. What are the odds? <laughs> so guys, this is something I struggle with. And today I am inviting you into that struggle. That is literally the best case scenario for the outcome of this message, is that you leave here with a struggle you did not have when you came in. 
buckle up. That's what we're talking about today. Because this is not simple and this is not easy. The juxtaposition between the values of the kingdom of God and the values of our culture on this issue of wealth worship, it could not be more different. So we've been in James for a couple months now. Today we're gonna be in James 5. So if you have your Bible or your phone, James 5, 1 through 5 is our text for today. And we've been in James for a while and I think you've probably either been resenting him for this or you've been excited and celebrating him for this, but James does not pull punches. He comes right at some of the hardest issues we face. One of the things I love about James is he assumes the gospel because he's, he's, he's uh, writing his letter to the church. So he doesn't spend his time explaining the actual mechanics of the gospel for God so loved the world. That's not what James is doing. James is saying, have you actually thought through what it means if you say you believe? Have you thought through the fact that faith without works is dead? Have you thought through the fact that this should affect the way that you talk and the way that you treat people? And today, it should affect the way that we view wealth, the way that we view money. So James 5, 1 through 5, buckle up. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That's an intense text. So today we're gonna to talk about wealth. We're gonna talk about the role it plays in our culture. We're gonna talk about the insidious power that it has to corrupt our hearts. And we're gonna talk about how we can embrace the transformative power of the kingdom of God on this issue. And if you find yourself feeling defensive today, if you find yourself feeling personally attacked, join the club. Me too. This week has beat me up. It is really hard to read this text, this text and a bunch of the other supporting texts and take it seriously. This week, I've been asking myself hard questions about what I actually believe. Looking at the evidence of my life and saying, I know what I say I believe, but do I believe it? So we're gonna talk about what James said and we're, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do, but we're gonna spend even more time on why this issue is so important to God and why it's so hard for us to hear. So this sermon is gonna be personal for many of us, myself included, because we live in the Bay Area in California in the middle of the economic engine that's driving so much of our country's economy and the world's economy forward. I work in tech, that's what I've done for the last 10 years. And for fun, I, uh, I looked up the market cap of the five largest companies in the area. It's five largest tech companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, Intel, Cisco. Those are the five largest public companies. Market cap is just a fancy way of saying, how valuable is this company, what's it worth? 2.658 trillion with a T dollars. That's these five companies. And that's not Uber, 
That's not Airbnb, that's not Pinterest, that's not Twitter, that's not Lyft, that's not Palantir, that's not a hundred companies that you've never heard of that are worth billions of dollars. So that's not to say that we're all swimming in wealth. There are people in this room right now, today's March 31st, and they've had a conversation with their significant other about which bills they should be laid on this month. Because last month, we were, were we late on, we were late on cell phone and pg and last month, so this month, let's be late on car payment. And that's a, a very real thing that's happening in our church. So it's not to say that everybody's swimming in wealth, but it is to say that we are in the middle of the battleground. We are surrounded by wealth worship. And from the sound of it, James is not a big fan of wealth worship. His words here are harsh and scary. It's like he's channeling the Old Testament prophets, channeling John the Baptist, even channeling Jesus, woe and misery. But the crazy part is, this is not just a verse taken out of context. Sometimes we do that with scripture where there's one verse and then we sort of build a whole theology around it that isn't really supported by the rest of scripture. This is not that. This theme is all over the Bible. So I'm gonna hit these really quick. You do not have to turn with me. I'm just making a point. Deuteronomy 24, 14. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Mark 10, 17, the rich young ruler. By all accounts, this young man has followed every law in the Old Testament. And he comes to Jesus and he goes, is that enough? And Jesus sees right through it, looks right into his heart and says, no. Do you wanna be a part of my kingdom? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He did not say tithe. He said, your wealth worship is keeping you from me, sell it all. Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. One important thing to keep in mind with parables is these are stories that Jesus made up to, to tell us a story, to make a point. So the themes of these stories very clearly matter to Jesus. And the theme of this story is there's a rich man who's unable to see a poorer man as his equal, unable or unwilling to be generous. And as a result, he is in hell. The stakes don't get higher. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in him? Where is the evidence of your faith? Luke 16, Luke 16 our Jesus, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one can serve both God and money. I know that was a lot at once, but here's the thing, I could keep going. This entire sermon could just be me reading passages like that and then I could walk off stage. There's, there's 40 minutes worth of content in there, trust me. And I want that to be so clear to us because we have every reason to want to wiggle out of this. To pretend it's not important, to pretend that God doesn't really mean it, but we can't. So it's clear that God has a point of view here. But I wanna talk about why this is such a big deal to him. And it's important to remember, we don't serve a God of arbitrary anger. We don't serve a because I said so type of God. 
God's anger <clears throat> is rooted in us missing out on God's best for us. So let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, God's not mad at the idea of money. Money is just a thing. Money is morality neutral. It's just a piece of metal. It's just a piece of paper. In America, it's an idea. It's we all decide this piece of paper is worth $1, right? This piece of paper is worth 20. This piece of paper is worth 50. It's a social contract that we have with each other. It can't do good things. Can't do bad things. Doesn't have a soul. It's just a thing but it has this ability to both reveal and to shape who we are. And that's its power. And the power it has over us is soft power, not hard power. So let's talk about the difference between those two things. Hard power is a hammer. It breaks you, it moves you, it makes decisions for you. It's often used in like geopolitical contexts where this country has more military or economic power over another country and you have to do what we say because we're bigger than you. That's hard power. And you know you're under the influence of hard power because a decision is made for you. Hard power is a hammer. Soft power is a song. It's insidious, it's sexy, it gets stuck in your head. It sneaks up on you and infects you. It allures you and it makes suggestions so that you think you're choosing it rather than the other way around. Wealth worship is soft power. It tricks us. Wealth worship moves the finish line. It lies to us and it tells us what we really want is just around the corner. That raise you've been hoping for, it's gonna make you feel like more of a man. It's gonna give you the respect of your peers. That promotion, it's gonna make you the successful career woman you always hoped that you would be. It tells you that that new house is gonna fix the hole in your heart or the hole in your marriage. It tells you like, I've got ultra boost, but I wish I had some J's. And then you get the J's and you're like, I wish I had Yeezys though. That guy's got Yeezys. Oh, are those Balenciagas? It's the part of you that was bummed when the new AirPods came out a couple weeks ago and they looked the same as the old ones. And you thought to yourself, how will people know I have the new ones? <laughs> it's that part of you that's embarrassed if you've still got an iPhone with a home button. You're like, oh, I'll hide it. I don't want anyone. Don't look at the bottom of my phone. It's embarrassing. It, it whispers in your ear that you are cooler and smarter and more important than people that have less than you. It lies to us. So how many times have we heard someone who achieved, they got to the top of the mountain, fame, prestige, wealth, whatever, and they're on stage somewhere and they're like, I finally got everything I ever wanted and I realized that it was empty. Like we've all heard that story like a hundred times, right? We don't believe it. I daydream, I've heard that and I'm in the middle of someone saying that, I'm daydreaming about, I can't wait till I can get up there and tell everybody that it's all empty. It's gonna be so cool to have the wealth and then also tell everybody it's not about the wealth. We don't believe them because this wealth worship, this soft power has wrapped itself and bent our heart so deeply 
So wealth worship is soft power and it's bigger than our willpower. And James recognizes this dynamic and he's tapped into God's heart on this issue and that's why his words are so harsh. When you read these words, don't read a boss yelling at you or some angry guy with a megaphone on the side of the road. I'll tell you how I read it. I have three kids. Do you know how often I have to get angry at them because I love them? Like a hundred freaking times a day. So often. So when I read these words, I'm imagining myself talking to my two and a half year old Josie, who's the world's most perfect human being. But she's dumb because she's two. And two year olds are dumb. And she doesn't know not to run in the street. She doesn't know not to wiggle her hand out of my hand in a parking lot and take off. She doesn't know the damage that a 6,000 pound metal object traveling at 30 miles an hour can do to a human being. She's not smart enough to be afraid of that thing. So in that moment, I want her to be a little bit afraid of me and what I will do, the privileges I will take away, the displeasure that I will show her. You're not smart enough to be afraid of the thing you should be afraid of, but I love you and I need you to be a little bit afraid of this thing. That's, that's the words of James here. He's trying to wake us up so we don't throw our lives away. So let's talk a little bit more about God's point of view on wealth. Um, the first thing to keep in mind is that God doesn't hate wealth. There are people in this church who have means and are doing it right. There's today, literally today, there's a party happening at a house. I think it's in Livermore or an apartment in Livermore. Let me tell you why they're throwing a party. A month ago, someone that goes to this church bumped into a homeless woman at Walmart, sat down with her, took the time, actually disrupted his routine, talked to her, got to know her, gave her a little bit of money, stayed in touch with her, invited other people to get in touch with her. Fast forward through a whole bunch of amazing things that happened. That woman is hosting a housewarming party today. And she's celebrating the fact that not only does she have a place to live, not only does she have a place for her kids to feel safe, a door she can lock, a place she can call home, she also has a job. Because one of this dude's friends was like, oh, she could totally do this. She's gonna pay her own rent this month. That's what can happen. That's what can happen when we, the wealthy, are tapped into the purpose of the kingdom of God and are using our means for that purpose. People encounter us and their lives are never the same. It is possible, but my warning to you is that there are a lot of us, myself included, in this room who are probably not in the category we think we are the category of, I know I have means, but I'm doing it right. What we're gonna be talking about today is how insidious these messages are and how we've lost our way. We're gonna talk about how wealth is a burden that comes with responsibility, that comes with a different level of judgment that we shouldn't just blindly pursue. So God doesn't hate wealth. He hates what wealth can do to us. Let's talk about that. Number one, it creates the illusion of self-reliance. I talked earlier about how I've been around a lot of uber wealthy people. And I would say this is the number one thing that I notice about them. In their minds, 
I am a captain of industry. I am a force of nature. I exert my will on the world. I rely on no one. If I think something needs to be done, I get it done. I'm proud of the fact that I rely on no one. I'm a self-made woman. I'm a self-made man. It creates the illusion of self-reliance. It eliminates our ability to recognize our need for God. Secondly, it creates division between brothers and sisters. And this one breaks my heart. We're gonna talk about it a little bit more later. But briefly, we are ranking people all the time and making assumptions about who they are all the time. And we don't even realize that we're doing it. We are divided into rich and poor, the haves and the have-nots. And plain and simple, that's not how Jesus sees the world. Therefore, that's not how we should see the world. Another example of this is, has anybody ever been around a family where a wealthy relative passed away and just chaos ensues? You thought this was a healthy family. Turns out, no. That's what wealth worship does. Wealth worship creates an identity separate from God. Who am I? I am a rich success. I, in the eyes of my peers, I have all the respect I could ever need. I am a member at Ruby Hill. That's who I am. I am a proud Tesla owner. Right now, I have a Lexus, but pretty soon I'm gonna be an Audi man. It creates identity separate from God. Lastly, it creates fear. I have a really good friend who recently came into a good amount of money and I asked him what changed. And he said, I'm afraid. That snuck up on me. I didn't think I was the type of person who was gonna live in fear, but now I'm like, how much does the FDIC insure in one bank account? And what if I make a bad investment? And what if I lose all this money I got? And he's not afraid of not being able to feed his kid. It's not a practical fear, it's an identity fear. What if I'm not a rich guy anymore? All of that to say, wealth becomes our idol. And God doesn't hate wealth, God hates idols. It's commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And then, just in case we missed how important it is to God, it's also commandment number two, don't make an idol. And in 2019, in the Bay Area, I'm convinced that wealth worship is our number one idol. I think if the Old Testament prophets visit us today and they smelled terrible and ate weird stuff and stood on the street corner and made us all feel uncomfortable, the thing they would be talking about is wealth worship. They would be calling out our hypocrisy. They would be reminding us that we've left our first love. They would be telling us that we have replaced the truth with a lie, that we have replaced the real thing with a shadow. That's what idols do, and God hates that. If you, if you back up and think about the implications of what he's saying, especially in the context of the whole book of James, the story that he's telling is the real world implications of a life that's actually been transformed by an encounter with Jesus. So when he's saying, be afraid, when he's saying the corrosion of your wealth will be evidence against you, will eat your flesh like fire, what he's actually saying is, if your life doesn't look like, if your finances don't look like if your speech doesn't look like 
the way you treat people doesn't look like someone who has been transformed by an encounter with God. Have you really been transformed? Do you really believe what you say you believe? And that's what you should be afraid of. That's what you should grieve for. The Bible, start to finish, is so clear on this topic. And here's the thing, y'all. I don't think we believe it. I don't think I believe it. There's such a huge difference between how often the Bible talks about wealth and the way it talks about wealth and the way it frames wealth and the way we talk about it and the way we orient our lives. I don't think we believe it. And the reason why is pretty simple. It's because the, value, the, the, the values of our culture and the values of the kingdom of God are so far apart on this issue that rather than confront that dissonance, rather than wade into that and embrace the fact that we're gonna be different and it's gonna look weird and it's gonna look illogical and people aren't gonna understand, we just kind of minimize it. We don't outright deny it. Although there are theologies that are built around if you follow Jesus, you're gonna get rich and those are lies. Those are just not true. But most of us don't buy that lie. We just kind of think we can have our cake and eat it too. We live our life according to one set of values when it comes to money and we give lip service to these things because actually living it out would be really hard. That's me. So let's back up from this and let's try to look at it as objectively as we can. Draw some comparisons between the values of our culture and the values of our God. So on one side, we have our culture's values. And as pithy a way as possible, wealth is good. It's something you should pursue. In fact, it's something we all owe to each other, the pursuit of self-interest. Greed is good. What a lie. What kind of gospel is that? Can you imagine Jesus Christ saying those words? You can't because he said the exact opposite. If you have wealth, it's because you earned it. It's because you deserve it. You did it. You're so awesome. Everybody else should want to be just like you. If you have wealth, it's yours. And you should hold on to as much of it as you can. Because implicit in that, if you hold on to as much as yours, as much of yours as you can, that gives me permission to hold on to as much of mine as I can. And I would really like that permission. Lastly, wealth is how we assign value. You won the game. You're at the top of the scoreboard. You must be special. We take the opinions of the rich more seriously than the poor. We do it in our personal lives. We do it on TV. Turn on the TV and you'll see some rich person talking about something they don't know anything about. But they're rich. So maybe they do. They won the game. And I want to be clear, most of these things are not things that we say out loud. They might not even things, be things that we explicitly think. But I would challenge you to search your heart because these messages are in there. They affect the way you think about things. They affect the way you vote. They affect the way you spend. They affect the way you interact with other people. They are in there. On the other hand, we have Jesus and his values. 
Jesus says that the last shall be first. You wanna talk about things we don't believe? There's one of them. Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to squeeze its body through the eye of a needle. Jesus talks about how wealth is a burden, a responsibility that a lot of us can't handle. More of us than we'd like to admit. And lastly, and most importantly, if the way that you achieve value and meaning and significance in the kingdom of man is by making it, Jesus says, I've placed the image of God inside of you. The Imago Dei. I made you, and that's why you're important. I love you, and that's why you're important. Has, could not have less to do with what you do. You matter because I made you, full stop. So here's what I'm getting at. This should be uncomfortable. Up top, when I said I was gonna invite you into a struggle, this is what I mean. You, we can't just take these two puzzle pieces and like ram them together and kind of back up and go, kind of works. It doesn't work like that. This should be uncomfortable. This should be a struggle. Our values are different. Our economy is different. Our scoreboard is different. It should feel like we're pulled between two worlds because we are. So church, what do we do with this? How do we continue to live in the East Bay and yet be joyful, winsome advocates for the kingdom of heaven right here, pointing people towards the hope of the world? What does that look like? I have the beginnings of an answer that I'm trying to work out myself. And I would invite you into that process as well. Number one, I think we need to recognize who we are in this story. James says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Does that last sentence sound familiar? For a few of us, this will be very direct. Some of us are in positions of ownership or leadership at companies. And if that's you, I hope that you read these words and take them very seriously. Followers of Jesus should be the best bosses in the world. Everyone should know, man, if you can get a gig working for a Christian, that's the gig. And not just because we are kind, not just because we are patient or any of the other fruits of the spirit, although yes, all those things too, because we pay more, because we are radically, illogically, impractically generous. They will know us by our what? By our love. That should be manifested in the way we engage in the marketplace. For others of us, maybe we don't own a company or have a position of leadership, but we've been tricked into believing the lie that we need more and that we don't have enough. We participate in that hustle every day. I don't know what your flavor of that is, but we've all got one. And in doing that every single day, we undermine the witness, the power of the kingdom of God. Because what we say to everyone around us is we are just like you. We are playing the same game that you're playing. We don't actually have anything that different. 
We just don't cuss. And come to our church. Who cares? We chase wealth, and in the process, we give each other permission to do it too. And I want to be careful with this, because like I said at the top, I'm very aware of the fact that there are people in this room that have very real financial struggles. So please know, I see you, I hear you. However, if you make more than $32,000, you are officially in the top 1% of global income earners. We talk about the 1%. Look around. You're sitting in the middle of the 1%. And that's not to say you can thrive on $32,000 a year in the Bay Area. You can't. You barely, barely maybe get by. I'm not even sure. But it's important to recognize our relative wealth. So first, we're gonna recognize our wealth. Secondly, we're gonna pay attention to the soft power of wealth worship. Here's what it does to us. It affects the way we see and rank people. We, every room you walk into, we don't even realize how we have been culturally, societally programmed to look for a hundred subtle signals of class. Do you dress like me? Do you make the same cultural reference as I do? What kind of car did you drive up in? You reference that your kids go to school. What school do your kids go to? How nice are your teeth? Do you talk like someone that went to college? We are doing that all the time. And what we're doing, like deep down in our lizard brain, is we're going, okay, we're about the same, so maybe I could be friends with that person, and I'm actually gonna probably make some favorable assumptions in my own heart about that person and their motives, who they are, what they want in life because maybe I have a, could make a connection with this person, but then this person's up here. So I'm, I'm either insecure and I don't want them to see that I'm not up there with them or I'm jealous or I'm gonna make assumptions about them. Then you're down here, or you're down here, huh? Well, there, but for the grace of God, go I. I feel really bad for them. Jesus doesn't think like that. It's as simple as that. I would challenge you to look, search your own heart, search your own assumptions as you see people because you're doing it. I'm doing it. I do it all the time. This is one of those things where I feel like once I've seen it, I can't unsee it. It's invaded our deepest selves and the way we connect with one another. It also affects how we view the visible poor, the homeless, folks working minimum wage jobs, folks in the developing world, children of God that were born in a different country than us, that are just as smart, that love their kids as much as we do, that want the same basic things in life. It affects our political thoughts on things like welfare and immigration and healthcare and any policy that directly impacts the poor. And to be clear, I'm not standing in this pulpit advocating for a political position right now. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is, it's infected all of it. And we might not think that we're oppressing anyone, but we vote for people and policies that do. Or we spend our money with corporations that do. Or we make it okay for Christians to do these things. Remember that when I assume someone, 
when I assume the worst in someone because they're different than me, I blaspheme the image of God present in, in them. Jesus says what you have done for the least of these you've done for me and I don't wanna ignore Jesus on the side of the road because he makes me uncomfortable and I don't wanna roll my window down. I don't wanna judge Jesus in Walmart because he doesn't talk like he went to the same college that I did. I don't wanna vote for a policy that oppresses Jesus at my, for my gain. How we treat the created reflects how we feel about the creator God. And Jesus hammers home the inherent God-given dignity of all people, but especially the poor. And that should have a profound impact on everything, the way we talk, the way we treat people, the way we vote, the way we spend, the way we save, all of it. Lastly, this, this soft power of wealth worship creates and reinforces our constant desire for more. And I'm not gonna belabor this because we all know it. I don't, I don't know exactly what your thing is, but there's something you want right now that you don't have and you wish you did. And you, you think that your life would be a little bit better and a little bit cooler if you had it. I have it too. So ask yourself if you actually believe the words of Jesus, the words of James, the words of the Old Testament prophets, the words of John, the words of Peter, the words of Paul, because they're all different versions of the same words. This is the uncomfortable struggle that I want you to be in with me this week. Do you believe it or not? Yes. And what would your life look like if you did? If I believe that God's purpose is to build the kingdom of God on earth, to pull heaven down, and I believe that the way he wants to accomplish that purpose is through the people of God, then that means that everything at my disposal, the ultimate purpose of that house, of that 401k, of that job, of that bank account. The ultimate purpose of all of it is to build the kingdom of God, all of it. So open up your phone, look at the money in your bank account. You know what that's for? Building the kingdom of God. Not 10% of it, all of it. And I know that sounds a little drastic and a little crazy, but I would invite you to find the flaw in my logic. So I don't have a neatly wrapped three words that start with P type of conclusion for you that you can take home on a note card and put on the fridge. I just have this. Um, we need to do radical and practical things to address this. We need to tear this up by the roots. We need to do a, a uncomfortable self-examination. We need to do big, crazy things. And here's a place to start. First of all, wealth isolates. We don't like talking about it. We don't like talking about how much we make or how much we have. It's a little weird now because you can just look up the value of my house on like Zillow. And I'm like, don't do that. It's my house. You're not allowed to know anything about it. So here's a weird idea. What if you were radically transparent with people in your life that you trust and you said, here it is. Here's my saving, here's my spending, here's my income, here's my house, here's my 401k. The ultimate goal of my life is at the end to hear well done, good and faithful servant. So trusted friend, trusted community group. When you look at this aspect of the way I'm living my life, do you see anything, anything that might prevent me from hearing those words from my God? 
And I know that sounds really weird, but why does it sound weird? If it's all God's money sitting in a few different bank accounts, who cares? Guys, money is so stupid. It's such a waste of our time and energy. We give it so much power over us. Power over the way we view ourselves and the way we view other people. It's a tool of the enemy to distract us from the real story. We're playing this dumb, stupid, small, insignificant game while the big game is happening all around us. It is a waste. I was talking to a friend about this after the Saturday night service and he said he was leaning over to his wife when I was talking about this radical transparency thing and he was like, okay, who should we, who should we talk to? And he said, the first thought I had was, it's gotta be someone that has more money than us. <laughs> Which I totally relate to, right? And then his wife was like, yeah, and someone older than us. Older and more money, that's who we can show this to. Oh, it's so stupid. But James loved us enough to be straight up with us. Jesus loved us enough to be straight up with us. Will you give your community the opportunity to love you the same way? Because who cares? I am so thoroughly unimpressed with how much money is in your bank account. I could give a rip. It says so little about who you are. Lastly, so if the first thing we could think about is radical transparency, the second thing I think we need to embrace in community as a church is that we need to repent. I need to repent of my idolatry. The Old Testament word repent means to come home. And when it comes to wealth, how have we drifted from God our Father's home? From his heart for our neighbors. We have to ask God to search our hearts because this thing is way in there. And there are things that feel true to us that are lies. And we need the Holy Spirit to tell the difference. Repentance starts with letting our heart be broken. But then there has to be movement. Yeah, God, my heart's broken. Out of that brokenness, tell me what to do and I'll do it. So let's repent and let's do it together. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, there were three men who were living in a culture that worshiped idols. Specifically one big idol. And they all got together corporately and worshiped it. Everybody did it. There was all kinds of social pressure and legal pressure for doing it. But these three men knew that we are not one of these people. This is not our home. They knew that there was a different value system and a different scoreboard that they cared more about. And so they refused to worship the idol. And their punishment was not the judgment or derision of their peers. Their punishment is that they were cremated alive. They were thrown into a furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a furnace. But then our Jesus, the son of man, showed up in that furnace and he saved them. And the power of that act of civil disobedience partnered with the miracle of our God redeemed the culture. The king started to follow our God. Guys, we can do that. Deep down, all of us, whether you're in this church or not in this church, we know that this pursuit of wealth is empty. We can feel it. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel that bubbling hustle just below the surface, that weary, stressed out tiredness trying to prove to everybody who you are and that you matter, that you're important? Aren't you tired? I am so tired. 
I am so tired of trying to prove to you how smart I am or how important I am, how worthy I am. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are tired, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And he's not gonna give us a nap. He's gonna remove the source of our weariness. Guys, we can do this. We have the answer. We just have to choose to believe it and we have to be bold enough to worship a better God than wealth. Thanks.